But I, I will say the idea that a scanner is just a keyboard mm-hmm. blows my mind. And I remember I was working at a company and one of the other guys was scanning. What are the, what are the barcodes? What are the, yes, thank you. <laughs> I was, my brain was trying to say horizontal QR. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 78. And on today's show, Just the two of us, Ben and I, are going to be talking about user experience guardrails. Tim is currently MIA in Barcelona, Barcelona, and Carol is MIA in California. I guess hopefully those guys are having fun, getting sun, but we're going to hold it down and do the podcast. So as usual, we'll start with our triumphs and fails. Ben, I guess we'll start with you. I'm going to start with a failure, and that's uh, kind of a combination of triumph and fail. Uh, the triumph being that I feel just like I'm manically crushing it this week. I'm taking vacation next week. So I have in my mind this idea that I want to finish and deploy this feature by Friday, which is looming very closely. We're recording here on Wednesday night. I created an epic for myself last week that outlined most of the tickets, and I've just been burning through these interfaces and uh, backend API calls and database table creations. Uh, it, it, The feature that I'm building is the ability for Envision administrators to be able to send an email to some segments or multiple segments of their team through the Envision platform. So new tables, new endpoints, new workflows, new user interfaces. It's not a ton, but it's a lot and it's multifaceted. And I'm just like cranking out these tickets. So that's the triumph. I really feel like I'm just being super, super productive. The failure there is that it's at the sacrifice of basically everything else. I've been putting in some extra time, like quite a bit of extra time this week, just trying to get those tickets, basically not looking at my emails at all. I'm not responding to people. I just like have not been working out this week. I I have not really been paying as much attention to the dog as I normally should. It's just, I've become super tunnel visioned right now at the idea of getting this feature to production by Friday. So I don't love the fact that it's all kind of been a sacrifice, but at least it's in a very constrained time period. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of this race. And when the race is done, I can go back to normal. So crushing it, but crushing it at the cost of everything else that might be meaningful in my life. So what's your approach if, if you finish the last thing that you need in order to deploy this stuff at like 4 30 on friday afternoon are you going to toss a match over your shoulder and walk out <laughs> for not just the weekend but like your entire vacation or are you just going to let it sit on the shelf until you get back i think i would need to finish it by tomorrow night in order for me so, to turn it on friday i feel like i need a solid day here with it on and me being able to test it in production to, to be comfortable just walking away. It so is for listeners. That's Thursday night. So yes, you can yeah. turn it on Friday morning. So yeah. I have one more day tomorrow to, I think, get it to be quote unquote feature complete. It doesn't mean it's like super polished necessarily, but it's mm-hmm. like MVP enough to show people. If I can get that done by tomorrow night, I think I can come in Friday morning, turn it on for myself, do a bunch of testing in production 
and then just let it rip for everybody else. I mean, the reality is like it's not going to be a huge uptick in usage, almost certainly not. But because it involves emailing people and emailing people in bulk, that's like that could go really bad really quickly if if there's mistakes. So I'm definitely going to be cautious. But I mean, ultimately, it's not even about the users. I mean, it is about the users, but like <laughs> half of it is I want to make my my little celebratory release video and post it in our private Slack channel and be like, yo, check it out. I did this. I did a thing. And that's like half of the joy for me is making that video and, and kind of get into beat my chest a little bit in the front of my team. So it's a mixture of motivations. I, I just want to make sure I don't make any stupid moves. I feel like, I mean, I don't know what you've done for this particular thing, but you guys are heavy users of feature flags. So if this is behind a feature flag, you could, in theory, just throw that match over your shoulder on Friday at five o'clock. And if it doesn't work out, they can just turn it off, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. And the vacation is a staycation. It's just some, some time off with the fam. We got some, my wife has her nephew come in to visit us for a couple of days and we're just gonna, we're just gonna chill. So theoretically, if there was an incident, I'm still in the on-call rotation because there's literally not enough people on the team to not be on the on-call rotation. Uh, Ooh, are you on call 24-7 now until? I mean, if, if the for, other for that people, app or whatever? If, yeah, yeah. If the other people don't pick up, it still rotates the okay. number of people. But if, if those people don't pick up, I'm always in the rotation of people that will get paged. Yeah. But gotcha. You're in the escalation chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the, the application at this point, there's not enough things that go horrifically wrong for really my team to get paged. In the last, I want to say, three years, I think my team has been paged like twice. And that's not a testament to the rock solidness of the application. It's more just like not enough of the application has changed. So it's just there's less opportunity for things to break. And and the things that do break, like, don't break to the level of incident. So when you say page, do you guys have, like, automated pages where, like, the system will detect something is going poorly and page you? Or is it only, like, a human is in the loop and they decide to page you? Yeah, so it depends on who you're talking to in the company. A lot of the teams do have automated paging based on metrics that they're that the system is logging, whether it's the CPU has been running at 100% for some period of time or something's run out of memory or the number of available pods has dropped below some threshold. On the legacy side of the house, the system has never been stable enough <laughs> to, to get like really good automated paging in place. So on the legacy side, the vast majority of pages are triggered either by the support team or by one of the other teams pulling in additional people. So, so like oftentimes what will happen is support because we have support 24 hours a day, which I think mm-hmm. is mostly like we mostly have support in the U S but then I think we have a couple of support people in Australia. So that kind of covers us. What they'll typically do is they'll see an uptick in support tickets and be able to replicate an issue. Then they'll probably page, uh, SREs are site reliability engineers, and then the SREs will will end up paging other teams based on what might need to be done. But again, that's for the legacy stuff. The newer platform, they do have a ton more observ not observability. What's the word? I'm thinking instrumentation. Of? Yeah, instrumentation. I think I'm thinking of observability. Anyway, they have a bunch of they have a bunch of that kind of stuff, like metrics that they're watching. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Oh, I mean, a uh, quick tangent on your triumph there. We were talking about feature flags. I had a quick 
feature flag win moment today oh, at yes. work. One of my coworkers wrote something in our, our team chat about, I expect to see a lot of chat notifications for such and such thing, doing like a scheduled job, doing its work for the next few hours. He just wanted to know, let us know. And where'd the thing go? I mean, basically he disabled a part of the application because the data it depends on was in the process of being rebuilt. So it wouldn't have been a useful feature anyway. And I was just like, I had this moment where I was like, wow, yeah, <laughs> we could do that, right? We can just turn off part of the application because we have that ability. It doesn't require a deploy or anything. Feature flags are, are like a total game changer. It is such a game changer. I'm so excited that, that, <laughs> that it's, 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 it's in your head now and you can't go yeah. back. You can't go back now. So there's this guy that Adam Cameron, friend of the show, blah, blah, blah. He shares a lot of this guy's videos. He's a, I guess he's a YouTuber and he mostly posts stuff on testing. But I watched one of the videos that he shared that was about continuous integration and talking about how like long running feature branches are an anti-pattern and all that stuff and, and how feature flags are an integral part of doing true continuous integration. Originally, I thought of continuous integration as like anytime you check in code, the tests run. Right. That's what, right, right. That, that was just my early understanding. And I, I think that I still don't have a perfect understanding of it, but my currently evolved understanding is that is true. But also, I'm kind of always checking into main. And like, so my code and my test editions are always there. And that way, if you and I are both working on the same day and we're kind of bumping up against each other, then if one of my tests fails because of a change that you made, even though my feature's not in production yet, we're aware of that problem before it gets to production. Like we're not at that level of our feature flag usage, but I like that we have that opportunity ahead of us. Well, let me ask you a question. How long can something sit in the main branch reasonably before you deploy it? This is a philosophical debate that we have at the company a lot. Uh, okay. And my team tends to sit on the side of, what's in production should be what's in main. So that mm -hmm. if something is exploding in production, you can look at the main branch and be like, this is a representation of what's in production. Other teams will like merge to main for days before the deploying and releasing. Yeah. And yeah. that has caused all kinds of issues on their side. But I can see it both ways. I can see it. Yeah, I can see it both ways. I think if you're going to do the the multiple like commits over days or whatever, you have to go with tagging, right? So you have these points in time where this is what was deployed, so you can get back to that state to to debug something or whatever. And there's it's tempting to take that approach, but I guess I'm also a huge automation fanboy, and I would love we we have the ability right now, and we do for certain things currently deploy because you pushed a code change, right? You pushed a code change that triggers a GitHub action. That action will like build a Docker container, run the tests. And if everything passes, it'll deploy a new container to ECR and ECS, or it'll push up a new version of a Lambda function or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we, we're even, for our QA environments, we're doing that, which are our QA environments are CFML. So we're building a new CFML Docker container with Lucy and our application code in it, running the meager tests that we have against that. And then deploying that. And it's not a fast thing, which is annoying, but that's not the automation tool chain's fault. That's Java and Lucy's fault. And I, I think some of my team members, especially, well, I don't want to, I don't want to throw anyone, anybody under the bus, but I think some of my team members are skittish about that level of automation. They're worried about yeah, something yeah, getting yeah. accidentally committed to main and then making its way out to production. 
And my opinion is the more effort we can put into automating deploys and making that deploy process as fast as possible, the faster we can recover from anything that anything problematic that makes it out to production and it's a non-issue. Yeah. Right? Definitely. So yeah. I see both sides. I'm of the opinion like just anytime you push domain, it should deploy. That's where I stand. Realistically, like we have a few things that are automated, like I said, like our production environments and certain other things are manually deployed. It's all automated still, but it's at the push of a button yeah. instead so that we have that human in the loop. Yeah, we still have the human in the loop. We it's we have a chatbot at work, so I go into a, a deployment channel and I say our chatbot is called Rosie based on the Jetsons. And I say Rosie release mm. and then the name of the service that's being deployed. And then mm-hmm. the robot does all the things. Yeah, but I'll tell you, so you talked about some of the slowness around Lucy and Java. One place that I struggle with, and this is going back to how often do I want to deploy versus how often do I want to merge into main, part of my thinking there that weighs on me is that when we deploy, and I don't know where this goes wrong, but we have Kubernetes. Kubernetes is what manages all the things in production. I know next to nothing about Kubernetes other than this like general idea that it's basically like a much fancier version of Docker for Mac. Uh, and I don't even know if that's accurate, but that's like that's my mental model. So anyway, we deploy to production and the deployment process takes a bunch of the old pods offline and puts a bunch of new pods with the new containers running and then shifts the traffic over. For reasons that I have not understood, and we've been using Kubernetes for like five years now, and I still don't understand why this happens, Kubernetes will continue to send traffic to a pod that is shutting down. And I don't know if it's that the pod is shutting down too fast or Kubernetes and all of the load balancers are too slow to sync up and they continue to send traffic to places they shouldn't. But essentially, during every deployment, even though we're spinning things up and spinning things down gradually over a period of time, I know for a fact that every deployment does cause some small degree of user interruption because I can see it in the error logs. Every deployment, there'll be like a small spike in like out of memory errors because someone was making a request to a pod that was just about to shut down or like thread deaths or like thread interruptions, like things that just shouldn't happen. And I don't know how to solve it. And I feel terrible Mm -hmm. about it because every deployment that I do, as excited as I am to deploy code to production, I know like somebody's request is probably going to break and they're going to have a crappy experience. And I've tried to put things in place. And this actually ties a little bit into the topic of the show. I've tried to build like some automatic retries in the JavaScript on the client side so that because it's all load balanced. So if one request hits a node and that node is just about to shut down and that request fails, like sometimes the UI will actually retry the Ajax request and get the data and hopefully it hits a new pod and it should be load balanced. But then people tell me that the Kubernetes load balancing is actually like not really that good. So if you hit a dying pod, there's not, it's not an insignificant chance that your next request will also try and hit that same dying pod. But this is all just like over my head and I, and I, and I feel crappy about it because I know it's not a good user experience, but at the same time, I have to get the code to production. And there's not like, there's not a lot of, Java expertise to help me figure out how to configure the pods better. And I don't know. It's very frustrating. I feel really bad about it, but I. Yeah, I can forward. relate. <laughs> yeah. It's like 
on one hand, you want to be like no request left behind, who just every request matters. But on the other hand, like if you're handling 10,000 requests a minute, you know, is an error for three of them right. that big of a deal? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. It's very challenging. Yeah. Oh, so that's my triumph, my failure. <laughs> <laughs> We're 15 minutes in. What about you? What do you got going on? I'm going to go with the triumph. It's a weird week for me. So I was not on the show last week because uh, I was out of town. We've talked a couple of times about some of the stuff that my company does. We have software designed specifically for universities and colleges to use for their large events, their like commencement, reunion, homecoming, that sort of thing. That's one of the like one line of our business. But so we were at Princeton's reunion this weekend which I believe they had 27,000 people register for, 23,000 of whom showed up. Holy cow. Yeah, it's a huge event. They've got like 14 like class headquarters, right? So if you're now, granted, you know, this is their first time back after COVID. So there's you know a lot of pent up, like yeah, got to get back to it. Yeah. And so, and I don't know if this is typical or not, but like, so say it's your 10th reunion. So it's 2022. So it would have been 2002 graduation year, right? So- but like, so they have a, a dedicated area on campus. It's got literal fences around it, big, like eight foot tall wooden fences around it. This is the 10th reunion area. And there's signs out front say, okay, this is 2002, but it's also for 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, whatever, yeah. like a, a group of years. And it's like 2002, this is your reunion year. This is your spot. But if you happen to be from one of these other years, like you're welcome here. You're, you're kind of invited. This is your designated home you're yeah, an honorary yeah. reunion year sort of thing anyway and there's so there's 14 of those across campus ranging nice. from i think the so the there's big ones and there's small ones and i think that they had like first and second i don't uh, i don't know but the the huge ones were fifth and tenth reunions and then it kind of trickles down they have uh it goes all the way out to 60th i think holy cow it's either 60th reunion or 65th. That one of the two is their last one, and then they have what they call the old guard, which is just like <laughs> Any, anyone is still alive. Come to this fenced off um, area. Yeah, yeah, it was huge. We so we deployed a crap load of equipment to this. I mean, we're doing so when you check into the event, you pre-register online. You get an email with a, a QR code in it in your confirmation. And when you show up to to check in on campus, you bring either that printed out or on your phone or whatever, we scan the QR code, we bring up your record, make sure you don't still owe money. And then we, you know, click the check-in button or whatever, and you're there. For identification, they give you a wristband. Instead of like a lot of things, like when you go to a conference, you'll often get a, a name tag on a lanyard, yeah, you yeah. wear it around your neck sort of thing. Princeton has, I guess, for a long time done what they, they it's a wristband. And they, I think they would just have like maybe numbered wristbands or something like that. It wasn't, you would get a wristband and it would be like, okay, you're registered and you're officially here, but there was no like identification on it. Mm. So one of the things that we did for them this year is they got these pretty, pretty cool um, upgraded wristbands. So they're, you can only put them on, you can't take them off. Like it's kind of a, like a bead, it slides down the fabric or whatever to tighten on, but you can't take it off. And then it had like little, a little plastic plaque on top, almost like a watch. Right. Like you can think of like a watch band that you just can't take off. And on that plastic plaque was a QR code. And then so oh. when you would check in, they would check you in and then they would pair your registration to the QR code that they put on your wrist. So that when you walk into one of those zones, you're like you walk into the fifth reunion, there's somebody standing at the door with like a little, it looks like a palm pilot with like a, a trigger handle. 
right? You know, they <laughs> yeah, scan yeah. it. A little red light comes out the front. They scan your QR code and it shows them, okay, this is your name and you're older enough to drink or whatever and you're you're good to go. Or it'll say rejected, they stole us money or don't let this person in. It's a stolen wristband <laughs> or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. A couple of different things. It was a huge event and it went off great. Oh, the other thing that... Uh, uh, fantastic thing. Now I can't really claim credit for this, but you know, it's my company. I'm, I'm going to take partial credit. So a lot of these people come and during the day, some people bring their kids, right? Like it's just, it's a big party. There was a three-year-old kid. I think it was three young enough that they weren't really talking all that much, especially to strangers got separated from their parent. Mm. And like somebody just like found a kid and we we're like, now what? <laughs> They brought him to to like the registration desk who got public safety involved. That's like campus security. And we figured out, scan their wristband on the kid that brings up their registration record and that we can call the parent right off the registration nice. record. And within like three minutes of somebody finding the kid, we were calling the parent. We called them before they even realized they didn't have the kid with them anymore. Yo, so very cool. That was awesome. You, you talked about how you're on a relatively small engineering team, right? I think you said there's five of you. So when a, alumni queue gets deployed to a university, how many people are going of your team? Well, so, yeah, yeah. So my team, I guess I would say is three people. It's myself and two other developers. And then we have mm. two other people in the company. My CEO who does like a little bit of everything. That's Steve, who we've had on the yep. show before. And sure. then we have another guy who's, his whole job is just logistics, like sorting out the name tag designs for all these events in advance and doing paper orders and managing all of our equipment and shipping and all that stuff and, and dealing with setting up of their events so that the developers can focus on developing and not data input mm -hmm. sort of thing. The number of people that we send to an event depends heavily on the size of the event, really. Like I'll, that was Princeton. They had 27,000 people registered. We had four of us on site. We probably could have done with more, but we just didn't have the staff yeah. between COVID and other events going on and stuff. I mean, that's pretty amazing that you can run an event that large with just a handful well, that, of people. That was our staff to to manage our equipment. There was also right, right, right. You know, right. Princeton is right. You know, probably has like hundreds of people helping to run. There's probably hundreds of just security guards. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's they their campus security staff. Then they pulled in like uh, I, I don't want to besmirch anybody, but you know, like rent a cop type services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To help them out, and then they also, from what I understand, got some of the like Princeton, New Jersey police to like come and and help and that sort of thing. And yeah, and that that's just the like security side. Then there's all of the like university staff that are like working the the check-in areas of the tents, right? So like our job being there is not to sit there and check people in. Our job is to respond to whatever might be going on, notice the patterns. If it looks like equipment starting to go down or if we're having network issues, whatever, that sort of thing. So we're running around like crazy trying to keep an eye on stuff and deal with whatever might come up and retrain people that didn't pay attention in training. But the real work is being done by like basically staff and volunteers and some student workers. Have you ever had something go wrong at an event that you couldn't recover from at the event? Not that we couldn't recover from. I mean, we've had some pretty big things like pretty early on when it was just me and Steve, we had an event at the University of Delaware. And we set up, like, they had a whole line of tables for, like, self-check-in, right? You wait through the line, you go through the stanchions, the little zigzag serpentine thing. When you mm -hmm. get to the front of the line, there's, like, 12 or 20, whatever, computers in front of you. You go to the next one that's empty, and you just uh, scan your QR code, it prints out your name badges, and you go on. Well, for whatever reason, we ended up with just this one spot where there was, uh, a, they have a floor pocket where the power comes up out of the middle of the floor so mm -hmm. that you can get it in different sections of the room. 
And that was supposed to be under the table, but for whatever reason, ended up in front of the table. And so we had like taped it down, tried to make it real nice or whatever. And you would think college graduates would think, maybe I shouldn't step on this cable that's taped to the floor. Well, enough of them did that eventually somebody stepped on it and ste- and like snapped through the extension cord that was running half of our machines. Crazy. Yeah. And what's even crazier, and this was like during peak check-in. So this was at a, oh. I don't want to... Uh, give away too much but like yeah. this is at an event where like and let's just say it's like fifteen thousand people registered and like we're expecting i don't know nine or ten thousand of them to to come through in like a three hour period so it, it's like peak uh, check-in time and boom half the stations just go offline they Whoa. just power down screens go black and you're like what the heck just happened it's because somebody cut the extension cord that everything was running off of well it could have been worse because when we were setting up we were like okay should we We could have very easily run everything off of that one extension cord, but I was like, "Eh, let's have some separation here. Like, the potential for redundancy. Yeah, some redundancy. So, so we did have two power sources that we were using. And, you know, it's like all the machines on the left half were on here and all the machines on the right half were on there. And it's like we just lost that one half. And so they were able to keep using the machines on the left. And I ran a new extension cord real quick and I got everything back up. And, I assume that early days, the level of anxiety going to a live event and the number of things that theoretically could go wrong, I assume there's still some anxiety going to an event, but are, oh, yeah. are you just way more comfortable now than you were before? Those uh, like gifts of people like looking around all confused and there's like weird math equations floating yeah, in front yeah, of their yeah, faces. Yeah. That is us heading into these enormous events, especially like, so Princeton, this was our first like real event with them. We had done something with them shortly pre-COVID, but just with like one of those reunion sites, like yeah. that, that one tent had pulled us in to do their registration and check-in that year. And then they were so happy. They were like, everybody has to use this. This is great. And so that one year, we kind of got a little bit of an understanding of how the event goes, but we didn't really truly get to grok like how much equipment is needed and how, what needs to go where and where we can expect a people volume to go and that sort of thing. So we expected chaos at this at Princeton's reunion and we got it but we learned a ton and I think that next year we'll do so much better it'll be so much lower stress we'll have we like we were working 18 hour days plus or minus it's like get up at six and and get ready and be on campus at eight so that you can train people so that they can set up at nine so that registration can open at 10 and then you're running from 10 a.m until like 2 a.m then you got to wait for the equipment to come back make sure you get it all charging so that it can be used the next day and then go back to your hotel and you get back to your hotel room at like 3.30, crash and get up at six o'clock and do it again the next day. It's like, oof, it was rough. So we learned from that too. It's like, okay, let's do some shift work or something to try and make that a little easier. But Were you like knee deep in in Mountain Dew bottles, I assume? (laughs) Oh man, the first day I was like trying so hard to stick to like just the one soda a day. And by the last day, I'm like- circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't have any monster, but it was like, oh yeah, just just pour the whatever caffeinated beverages you got. Actually, I did have monster. I take it back. They had so by the end, we figured out that the public safety crew had no problem with us just kind of hanging out in their little headquarters mm-hmm. building. And they, I don't, I don't know what the deal is, but they had the best food and the best like drinks. And I mean, they're sending out tons of officers and stuff, and they want them to stay hydrated and well fed yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. so that they can do their job. But it was just like nonstop great food. They, I mean. 
obviously it's not amazing food. It wasn't like caviar and whatever, but it was like pizza or buffalo wings or there was like a Chick-fil-A catered one day or Qdoba or whatever. It was just like tons of food, lots of beverages, just cooler after cooler with water and Monster and Gatorade and anything you could want. And yeah, I was abusing the caffeine there. <laughs> yeah. I'm back down to like two a day for the last couple of days. Yeah, nice. I one time went to a TechCrunch Disrupt hackathon. It's the yeah. only hackathon I've ever been to. It was like a just one 24-hour period. And they just had so much caffeine there. And mm-hmm. I coded all through the night. And I remember at one point, like at 2 a.m. or something, my hands started to shake. And and for the first time in my entire life of drinking caffeine, I was like, I don't feel safe. <laughs> like This does not feel like a good amount of caffeine. <laughs> this is not what crushing it is supposed to yeah. feel like. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, congratulations on getting through a, such a huge event. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was very exhausting. Everybody was really happy. I mean, everything, all the feedback that we got was everybody loved it. It wasn't without issues, but we figured out what some of them are. We dealt with, it, it's little things, right? Like, so if you're, it's, everything is outside. So you're trying to run Wi-Fi out of, off of antennas that are like stuck onto the side of buildings or whatever. And it's like, they anticipated the need to be over here, but then it was yeah. five feet to the left. And because it's five feet to the left, now it is not in the sight line of the antenna. It's like around a corner of a brick building. And now there's crappy Wi-Fi. And so just little things like that can make a huge difference. Well, do you, speaking of Wi-Fi, because I know at, at large events, Wi-Fi is often a problem. Mm-hmm. Do you hard, do you wire in for all of your equipment to make sure that uh, you're always connected? We would love to be able to do that, but 99% of the time we are forced into these areas where it's like, yeah, here's a table under a tent, like an easy up tent out in the middle of a field somewhere. So what you get. (laughs) Yeah. We're sometimes we're even lucky if they run power. I mean, I don't think we could truly work without power. Our printers need to be plugged in, but I think everything else could theoretically run off battery. So like, I guess we've done things where we don't need to print. Like with the wristbanding, we don't need to print because it's already yeah, yeah. pre-made wristbands. But yeah, I mean, it, it's basically we run everything off of MiFi's or sometimes we have like some devices with SIM cards in them. Oh, so that so you're running off of your own network. Yeah, or I mean, it's a mixture, right? So MiFi's or if it depends on what we're doing, right? So there's PCI concerns too because sometimes you're going to be collecting yeah. payments. So typically what we'll do is we have a dedicated Wi-Fi network that the school will provide. It's like specific to that event, specific for our Mm -hmm. machines. And that way, at least we don't have to worry about that network itself being clogged. Though I have concerns about if if there's a thousand phones within uh, a radius of that antenna, it doesn't matter whether or not they're connecting, they're going to be seeing it and there's going to be interference if they're trying to connect to a a different Wi-Fi network. So yeah, I don't know. It tends to be one of those things that like is never perfect, but you can typically find a way to make it good enough. So much to consider. This is one of those things where people have an idea for something and they're super cagey about sharing that idea because they think, oh, if, if anyone else heard this idea, then, you know, they'll just run with it. And, and my, oh yeah, like I won't get rich off this idea. But like so much more goes into getting something to work than just the idea. Like there's just so many moving parts and so many barriers to entry and hurdles. I'm just thinking about power cords and mm-hmm. networks and mm-hmm. dedicated networks oh, man. and MiFi's. I mean, just, it's just like, it, I would just, if I dared to even think about the extensivity of what goes on, I'd be like, oh, no, not for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's yeah, too I much mean, work. 
Something you said earlier made me think of, you, you were talking about us having a small team and putting on these events for these huge people. Obviously, we couldn't do it ourselves. We rely a lot on the campus staff and their volunteers and all that. But when we started, it was just me and Steve and we had the University of Delaware as our first big one. I guess before Delaware, Steve was working with Cornell. They have a really big event as well. But yeah, I mean, there's a huge imposter syndrome. You're like, if I yeah. fail at this, then this whole event is going to crash and burn and it's going to be my fault. <laughs> and that's a huge amount of pressure. But so far, we've never had any major uh, issues. Nothing unrecoverable. Yeah, awesome. Many and, and many more. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, man, it's crazy. Like, this is, it's a blessing and a curse because like, this is our busy time of year. This is the time of year that yep. all the schools want to have their commencements and reunions and everything. And so... Basically, my entire company is on the road every weekend from like, I don't know, sometimes as early as like last weekend in April through mid-June. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I did University of Penn. Yeah, University of Pennsylvania. I did Princeton last weekend. This weekend, I'm going to be at Swarthmore. And the following weekend, I'm going to be at University of Delaware. And that's just me, right? Like my coworkers are flying all over the place too, right? We're doing Brown up in... Uh, Rhode Island and the University of Maryland has an event in Manhattan tonight. Somebody's going to work and like, it's just crazy. This this time of year is nuts for us. Dang. Yeah, I can imagine. So. Oh, all right, good times. Yeah. So you had talked previously about something like from your failure about sometimes you have to, you feel like you have to put in guardrails for your users for stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm considering here, and, and this is part of the gravity of the situation is that I'm sending out emails to a lot of people, or theoretically, I could be sending out emails to a lot of people. And as silly as it sounds, we still live in a world where people on the web double click submit buttons and it can be really easy for that double click to lead to double things in the server and if it's two records that get created accidentally that's like not a huge deal but if it's two sets of a thousand people being notified by email i mean you could squint and say like it's just email it's not such a huge deal but it feels like a much bigger deal when you're notifying people in bulk yeah, and it's not a big deal until somebody important gets notified twice or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. And oftentimes, I try to lean on the database as much as possible for you have, like, I'll have a unique index on something so that double submits either fail, like the second one will fail, or at least there'll be something I could, I don't know, there's something I can recover from potentially, or I could do like an insert ignore into kind of a thing and at the SQL level. But something like this, where it's there's nothing particularly unique about an individual email, I'm a little bit stumped on, obviously on the client side, I prevent double clicks from actually doing something, right? So the first click usually will set some sort of an is processing flag in the JavaScript so that even if someone were to click again, the second click would just be ignored. And, and I feel like that's probably going to cut out the issues period. But like, uh, like part of me is always worried about that maybe it won't, or maybe someone will accidentally remove that flag, or maybe I just messed it up. Or disable um, JavaScript or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like something will happen. And then I, I, I was like, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> if that happens. You want to, I have a, an idea. It's the first thing that came to my mind, throw a GUID in the form as like one of your hidden form fields. You know, then, it's so funny. I was literally like, just before we got on the call, I was like, oh, maybe what if I've just provided a value from the clients? I would go ahead, go ahead. 
So yeah, you just have a GUID and then you assign that to your message or whatever that you're sending, wherever you're storing that. And you just check for duplicates. If I've already sent this GUID, then I don't, I can ignore this request. Do you store that in the table or are you storing it in like a temporary mechanism somewhere? It depends entirely on how your email system is operating. I don't know if you're saving the contents of the messages that are sent, yes, but if yeah. you are, then Well, it's- no, no. So, so essentially the, the way I've designed it is it's a two table mechanism that there's one table that represents like the subject line and the content and a call to action. Like basically mm-hmm. that outlines what the email will be. Okay. And then a, a second table that says, okay, now for each one of those records, now I need an individual record for each user that's going to be notified. So essentially the second table acts like a, I don't want to say message queue because it's not really a message queue because it is, it's mm-hmm. a historical record of the emails that go out, but it's not the copy. So it's like mm-hmm. a one-to-many relationship. So essentially yeah. you create the, this, I call it, I'm calling them a mail blast. There's one mail blast record and then there's N number of mail blast recipients and they all kind of get this scheduled and sent date. And then there's a background, a, a cold fusion scheduled task that runs in the back and just says like, give me the next chunk of people who have been scheduled, but not sent. And I'll send them and then I'll mark them as sent kind of a thing. So what, when somebody clicks the send button, what is that actually triggering? That's like saying, is that sending, like setting a, a flag that says I should be sending? Yeah, so it creates the mail blast record and it creates the N number of user records that need to be notified. Do you not have like a draft status or anything? I was thinking about doing a draft status, but then because I'm racing to get to this deadline, I'm like, it's so, I'll tell you, there's something fascinating about flexing a MVP muscle where Mm -hmm. every time you think, hey, wouldn't it, this feature would just be a little bit cooler if I did X or like would be just a little bit more elegant if I did Y. And you constantly have to say to yourself like, no, no, (laughs) MVP, solve that next time, get this out the door and then like create a fast follow epic or or something else to add the new value. But so I've been really, I've been really trying hard to solve only the problems that I have right now. And even that I've failed at a little bit, but I'm trying so hard. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple things you could do. I mean, even if you're, so you you don't have an ID that already exists on like your draft message that you could say, okay, well, I've already sent that one, so I don't need to do it again. But you could still, just in the view itself, create a GUID and say, this is the GUID for this action and log each one. It would cost almost nothing to throw that in the database. Even if you delete them all after two weeks or something, here's a GUID for a message and it it belongs to this message ID or blast ID, sorry. (laughs) I'm using my own terminology from my app, right? So it's got a mail blast ID and the GUID that was used to send it and and like a flag that just says it was sent or whatever, or it was queued. I'll tell you, I really like that idea because it's so simple. And and the GUID doesn't really mean anything. It's just a uniqueness marker. So it's it's like, uh, I don't love the idea of storing it in the database, but if I do store it in the database, then I can put a unique index on it. And even if I never look anything up, at least two inserts in a row with the same GUID will fail. And like, yep. ultimately, it, it, here's the thing is like, from a user experience standpoint, you're weighing the pros and cons of different failure modes, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. With like how you put everything together. So, there's the failure mode where I accidentally sent the same email twice to a thousand people. And then there's the failure mode where their form shows an error message because they're getting the results of the second click and not the first click kind of a thing. Definitely, I can recover much better from the 
something went wrong with your form submission error, then the I accidentally sent the wrong email to a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm I'm definitely liking this idea. I mean, it, it, yeah, uh, I'll bill you. <laughs> um, and it, it doesn't, as far as a GUID, it doesn't even necessarily be, need to be globally unique, right? So, so the mail blast table has a customer ID, and if I add a, if I add some other unique token, mm-hmm. I could have my, I could have my unique index on the customer ID comma token value. Yeah. So it doesn't have to. Be, it would just have to be unique to that customer, and then yeah. it could even be just like a tick count or something. Honestly, I think that you're already overcomplicating it. Like, because uh, <laughs> yes. I know you're using CFML like, and, and just create you know, UUID. The, yeah, create UUID is, is going to be unique enough. Like the, the possibility oh, of overlap percent, there. A thousand is, percent. Yeah. Um, Yo, can I, sorry, just side tangent for a second. Please. I have this weird, irrational fear that I'm going to quote unquote use up the UUIDs, and I know that technically that's not how UUIDs work. Like they're mm-hmm. they're time based, as far as I understand. Like it's a combination. I think of like times and counters and entropy. But I'm just every time I call create UUID, part of me is like, don't call that too much. <laughs> <Run out. laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's crazy though. It's like something like there's more. UUIDs available than there are like atoms in the universe or something like that. It's yeah. a possibility. And I, then like, I, I totally understand that feeling though, because so for our support tickets, we have a, a ticketing feature built into our app. And instead of having like a numeric ticket ID, we, we kind of wanted to hide the fact that the app was real young. So we were like, okay, anything numeric, it starts at 6,000 <laughs> instead yeah, yeah. of one. And so our support tickets, what I did was I like, did a SHA-256 of of a GUID or something like that. And then it's like the first six or eight characters of that SHA is the is the ticket ID. And I store the full yeah. SHA in the database. But if you're searching, uh, like when you try to pull up a ticket by ID, the, the IDs in the URL, whatever ID you pass it, it looks for a SHA that begins with that. So if for some reason in the future we need to expand out to 10 characters or something, we could do that. And we just have to start mm. providing more back. You know, I, I feel like using non-numeric keys in a database is an area that I just don't feel very versed in. Like, I don't feel very comfortable. I don't know what the down, the implications of it. Mm-hmm. I, I know that having an integer as a primary key that's like super battle tested, and the, there's not there's nothing you can do that's wrong. That's just like that's how. The database uh, is super efficient. Have you have you seen some of these apps? <laughs> well, what I, what I mean is like, the, there's it's a small space, right? It's four bytes for an unsigned integer, and this it, they're just really good at looking up by integers, as far as I understand. But if I wanted to start storing character based keys as my primary keys, I start to I just I, I feel like someone needs to educate me on how that works. And what are the trade-offs? Like, what are the downsides of doing that? What are the benefits of doing that? And then just like, what things to keep in mind? Because right now, I feel like I wouldn't do it right. And I'd end up creating like massive indexes where instead of four bytes for each index entry, it's like 32 bytes of character data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're you're on the right path there. Some databases, right? I, I think they have like special representations of UUIDs. Like it's not 32 characters. It's like a binary value that's much more efficient, I think. 
But then I think that's only if the database does it for you, not if you provide it. I don't know. See, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I, probably yeah. what I just said is entirely wrong, but we're out past our depth here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just feel like I, I need to take like a Udemy course on. So you want to use UUIDs as, as primary keys. Yeah. I, I would yeah. watch a 10 part episode of that. <laughs> so I want to move over and talk about uh, a, a user experience thing that I see a lot. So I find that like with certain types of people, teaching them how the equipment works, like so specifically, I'm thinking about a certain piece of equipment that we use for our reunions, like our QR code scanner things that mm-hmm. the, the, that said looks like a Palm Pilot with a trigger handle. Basically, the way that it works is it's, it's an Android phone that's got a built-in like laser scanner thing like a, like they have at the grocery store and it's trigger actuated and that scanner acts as a keyboard in the the Android phone right so you mm-hmm. focus a field and you click the trigger it shoots out the scanner whatever data it reads it drops into whatever field happens to be focused and hits enter and there are certain people like especially when you're working with like college students you're like this thing is a keyboard you just got to make sure that input is focused you pull the trigger and it does its job and they're like cool perfect i got it and then I don't want to throw old people under the bus. That's my crew now, right? I'm old. But certain people find it particularly difficult to understand that concept. And no matter what you do, there's the type of person that like can't help but brush up against a touchscreen and mess something up when they're not trying to. They're just holding the device off to the side or whatever. And, and like it's too easy to get upset with people that are trying to use your application that don't fully understand like how to make things go perfectly because if you know what you're doing and you use it perfectly it works wonderfully but if you don't have those guardrails up and somebody brushes up against a touchscreen or something like that and, and sends things mm-hmm. haywire then it's really easy for everything to go off the rails and all of a sudden you're getting called down to a reunion site because their their scanner device has 37 tabs open in the little chrome <laughs> browser and they're just it's making a beeping noise but it's not showing them anything useful. So we, my team saw some of the struggles that we were seeing with those things this last weekend. We we're brainstorming all these different ideas of how to make that thing like more user proof, right? So like, I think that there's a, like a kiosk mode in certain Android devices or in hmm. different apps you can set up so that like, or maybe it's in Chrome. I forget exactly where it is, but there's a kiosk mode sort of thing you can turn on, which is like, you can't exit the app and you can't open any new tabs. So you're just there and it's full screen and it looks like that's the only thing that the device does. And then like, so that, that would help partially. And then it's like something as simple as you could do like on document dot on click focus that input again so that if they happen to touch elsewhere, right, right. then it focuses the input again and you don't have to worry about it. Like just lots of little things like that could go a long way to to make the user experience like more foolproof and it was kind of fun to sit down and brainstorm like all the different possibilities. We before we came up with that document dot on click thing, it was like we were thinking, okay, well, what if we did a set timeout of like every three seconds, just refocus that just input, focus, yeah, focus, 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 or yeah. like what if we did on blur of the input, refocus it or whatever. But yeah, it's yeah, like, I don't know. I I feel a personal responsibility not to get upset when users find a way that I didn't predict to mess up how they use my application, right? Like as the designer of the application, I take full ownership of that user experience. And if it doesn't go as I intended, then that's on me. And, mm-hmm. and that's just, that's it. That's that. Uh, I can't <laughs> explain it any further than that. <laughs> 
No, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before that just not enough people even consider the unhappy paths of workflows and, and user interfaces. And there's so much that can go wrong, even just in the mail blast thing that I'm working on right now. For example, my database field is, let's say the subject line is 250 characters or 250, whatever the default is. I think I just used that. But it's storing UTF-8 MB4. So people could Mm -hmm. theoretically put emojis, you know, like little rocket ships and whatnot in their subject lines. Uh, Yeah, it's a sore subject for me, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So I also have max length on the input fields because I don't want people to put in a lot more than they can do. But I don't yet have a strong grasp of how max length on, say, an input field maps to a character set that can like a, can take up to three bytes, right? So, so a lot of the emoji characters mm-hmm. can actually require three bytes or even more mm-hmm. to store. But the, So I don't actually know if the max length that I have on the input is valid, meaning mm. is, is a max length of 255 in the browser equal to a max length Varkar 255 if the Varkar can contain emojis, or does the browser also take that into account with their max length? I don't know. I should probably test that mm-hmm. so that all of a sudden it just doesn't fail because of a... Because somebody tried to send an email with 255 kissy emojis as a subject. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Just lots of uh, rockets. I, I don't know. There's just so much that can go wrong. And when you're barreling towards trying to get something just to a working mode, it, you, you don't take the time all the every day to to think about all the things that can't go wrong and then to what you're saying then to put in all the safeguards so that not just that to acknowledge that they can go wrong but then how can we try to counteract those measures it's really challenging and i think a lot of i don't want to say younger developers i think a lot of developers in general just don't take the time to really appreciate everything that can go wrong and how to cater a better experience but i, I will say the idea that a scanner is just a keyboard mm-hmm. Uh, blows my mind. And I remember I was working at a company and one of the other guys was scanning. What are the, what are the barcodes? What are the, yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I was, my brain was trying to say horizontal QR. (laughs) (laughs) He was doing something where he had to scan QR codes off of like registration papers for something. And I was like, oh, this is so magical. Anytime hardware gets involved, my brain flips into, oh, this is so magical mode. And uh, he was reading through the documentation of this hardware device that that he that we got at the company, and it, and it, that's what it said. It's like this is just a keyboard. You focus an input, and it'll type keys into that input. I was like, oh, yeah. what? <laughs> Mind blown! That's <laughs> so simple. Yeah, too clever for its own good. Actually, just clever enough for its own good, really. Yeah, and he ran into the same kind of issues that you were talking about, where I think the input they didn't even want the input to be visible on the screen. Mm-hmm. So it was like he, they had to wire it up as some sort of a hidden thing. So then it, it kept losing focus, but no one could actually tell that it lost focus because it wasn't really being rendered visually on the screen. And I, I, this was 15 years ago. Ooh. I can't even remember what the heck they were doing. I just had a, a totally random thought, like a, some sort of like a, like on focus event that's like, okay, I'm ready to scan, like a show a thing ready to scan on the screen and an on blur yeah, yeah, show yeah, yeah, not yeah. ready to scan. That would be kind of cool. I like it. And like another, so another UX thing about these scanners, right? Like, so one of the things that we noticed is by default, when you scan something with the the scanner device, like a physical thing happens is it beeps, 
right? To let you know that it captured something out of that barcode. Now, I guess it happens in software, but it's like part of the scanner app itself and you can turn it on or off. Mm -hmm. And we didn't think too much of it and we were deployed these things. And when somebody with less, I'm trying to be, you know, politically correct here. When somebody's not paying attention to what's going on and they're just like, my job is to stand here and pull the trigger and wait for the beep sort of thing. They're not like Mm -hmm. looking at the screen to make sure it's actually doing anything. It's not just Google searching for 6A4F2. It's like actually doing something. Then that's a problem, right? They were just listening for the beep. So what we decided we're going to do is we're going to disable that beep from the scanner app itself, but then we're going to have our app beep like a success noise and a, and a failure noise and that like that's just one of those little things that you can't really predict that you're going to need until you see how people are misusing your application how, how are you going to make it beep we already do other things to play sounds it has a speaker on it and so you know like our oh, web app like, plays sounds playing yeah like a little mp3 or something in that like a little mp3 gotcha yeah. gotcha or og vorbis who knows <laughs> There is a, I think there is some sort of like audio synthesis. Yeah. I think there is. I might. Have you seen the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie? Yeah. I watched it like a year ago. Do you you remember Marvin, the like super depressed robot? Yeah. 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 This is a great use of my computing power or my resources or something. Like he always sounds, it's Alan Rickman, you know, God rest his soul. Wonderful guy. But so we took that as inspiration. So we have this like, dashboard that watches our live mail sending or, you know, when we're sending bajillions of messages out, we kind of want to be able to, to monitor stuff. And so we use the text to speech API. And so if you happen to have the dashboard up when it's about to send mail and you have the little box check, that's like make audio, make noise to let me know when stuff's going on. It'll say like, what does it say? Oh, like, it's like, Oh look, more mail <laughs> or stuff like that. Like, <laughs> this is a great use of my resources because we picked one of the voices that sounds kind of depressed. I think the text-to-speech API would make for a really awesome Easter egg, like an April Fool's joke or something, Mm. like trying to go and do something in the system, and the system's like, are you sure you want to do that? Oh, man. Maybe this is an appropriate time to bring up what I did for our April Fool's joke this year, because it it did kind of have some UX concerns, and it it wasn't something we could have predicted, and and when it went sour, we turned it off real quick, but inspired by somebody in the, the... working code discord, I set it up so that the entire application, I just did like on the body tag. Actually, it was the, just the, like the main area of the application, like the sidebar and the header were fine, but that main application portion would rotate somewhere between two and five, or maybe it was like two and 10 degrees, but a random amount, just like twist the the screen just a little (laughs) bit. Just to like make people CSS transform. Yeah. yeah. Just on that one div and it would all the content inside of it. And it was working great at first, right? We got all these tickets that were like, something's wrong. My screen just doesn't look right. And they wouldn't attach a screenshot or whatever. (laughs) And I would send them one back. I would like open it up and go into the dev console and take out the transform or just like disable it and take a screenshot of it and be like, it looks fine to me. I don't know. Maybe your monitor's (laughs) tilted or something. And that was fine. Except the what was it? It was causing problems with something like the, I think with all all of our modals and we use modals pretty heavily, like somehow it messed up and like it put the, the, the dark background that goes up behind the modal in front of the modal or something like that. So you really couldn't do anything once you popped up a modal. Like, Hmm. well, okay. We couldn't have predicted that was going to happen. And so, I mean, I might've been able to fix it, but at that point it was like, all right, fun's over turn it off. And I mean, I later had a discussion with somebody and they were like, it, it was, I, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to claim anything. It's not, but basically what they were saying is it, it mounted, it, it counted as like an accessibility issue. Like having the screen tilted was 
making mm. it more difficult for them to use the app. And I, I get that. I don't want to be a stick in the mud. I, I don't want to say that they're being a stick in the mud, but at the same time, like, you know, just a little, little yeah, twist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Accessibility is, is another one of those things that I feel like I'm only beginning to scratch the surface mm-hmm. on how to not just think about it, but how to build it into my day-to-day thinking. It's a, especially with a single page application. So, so Envision is primarily a single page application. There's, there's other individual pages, but for the most part, you load up a platform and then the platform is what you're in for some extended period of time. And just the, all the, the focus and the, even like, even just semantic elements, like choosing the right semantic elements that would theoretically help a screen reader and then shifting focus around so that people assisted devices know where they actually are. Mm-hmm. Oh man. It, it, it feels like one of those things that it, it, it almost, you can't learn it on your own the way you can other technologies. Like you really need someone to handhold you. I, yeah. I feel like. And I don't want to, I don't want to like victim blame, but I wonder, part of me wonders if like, so a lot of these assistive technologies are based heavily on or possibly just were last built before like single page apps and Ajax was a thing. Right. And so they, yeah, yeah. they just had this expectation of the post and response. and. I wonder if it's not time for like a new generation of assistive technologies that like are aware of how single page apps work and like notice that the document changed and it's like, okay, a modal has appeared and this is the title of it. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I don't know anything about it really. So it's, it's, I've read a couple of books and, and it still feels 99% foreign. To how to do it properly. I just like the biggest thing I do now is I try to use a button instead of a link when it's just doing an action. And I feel like that's a big step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But uh, so much more to go. Okay. So uh, this episode of Working Code is brought to you by the User Experience Corporation, who would like you to please listen carefully as their menu options have changed. And <laughs> listeners like you, if you're enjoying the show, you should consider supporting us on Patreon. It's the best way to keep the show running. Patreon donations get put towards things like our editor and our recording software. So we appreciate all the help that we get. And special thanks to our top patron, Monty. So we have a new patron this week, Coleman Sperando. Welcome aboard. Thanks for your your patronage and make sure you join our, our Discord. And so all of our patrons get early access to new episodes and our after show, which you know what? I started thinking, I think either we need to start calling the after show the post-mortem or like the after action review, something like that. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But we keep the mics going and we talk about random stuff. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. You can go to workingcode.dev slash review and that'll take you to the right place to leave us a good old review on that Apple thing, wherever your local country is. So we'd appreciate topic suggestions and your questions. You can send those to us at workingcodepod on Twitter or Instagram. You can join our Discord by going to workingcode.dev slash Discord. You can send your questions via text to workingcodepod at gmail.com, or you can record a voice memo on your phone and send it to that same email address. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember people, your heart matters. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.